a lot of people think that, you know, getting email subscribers, uh, getting SMS phone numbers is building community. And that's that's not true. That's definitely one piece of the puzzle. And, and that piece of the puzzle, of course, is... My name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn how they built a private community of thousands of people ever before launching their products, the six-figure inventory setback that almost ended their business, and the dangers of catering content too much towards your demographic. Before our show, I wanted to chat about the storefront signage maker. It's an easy way for any brick and mortar shop owner to let your customers know that you are open, available for curbside pickup, delivery, online information, and more. Customize any message you like, automatically create a QR code for your store, then print it off from home. It's easy and simple to use. No design experience required. Create a sign yourself at shopify.com slash signage. Today, I'm joined by Kaylee and Kay Chan from Emmy. Emmy is the world's first low-carb, high-protein, 100% plant-based instant ramen and was started in 2019 and based out of San Francisco, California. Welcome, Kaylee and Kay Chan. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so the idea behind the business, behind the products, all came from health issues that you were seeing in your in your families. Tell us more about what you were seeing and how it led you to down this path of starting Emmy. Definitely, this is Kaylee. So, Kaysen and I both grew up in Asian food families. My grandparents are produce farmers in Taiwan, where they grow something called a rose apple. And my 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 grandmother, she actually owned a hawker noodle stall out in Thailand for. 40 years. And my dad ended up opening a noodle shop uh, down in LA. Um, so definitely both food family based. Yeah. And both of uh, our parents ended up immigrating to the US actually, so we wouldn't be in the food industry, which is pretty ironic. Uh, but over the past few years, Kachin and I, uh, you know, as we've gotten older and as our families have gotten older, we've seen them suffer through chronic health conditions like diabetes and high blood pressure. And so a few years ago, we started chatting about what a better for you food brand would look like to help address some of those, uh, those issues. Um, and since we had grown up in Asian food families, um, it kind of became a natural extension for us to start thinking about uh, the Asian food space and why there wasn't a leading better for you brand. Um, and uh, that's kind of how the, the genesis started. Yeah. And you mentioned that your families had the background in the food industry. Like, what were you, you both like person, did you also have the expertise to begin just making, you know, a, a building a food company? So Kitchen and I actually, uh, we, we spent the past decade uh, in the tech industry. And part of this again was, you know, our families kind of immigrated here and didn't want us to necessarily grow up working in the food industry. But Kitchen and I actually met, 10 years ago at a mobile gaming company, we were both product managers there. And we were like the only two PMs who would go get noodles for breakfast together. So uh, mm. that was actually how we started. We bonded and got to know each other. And we did take slightly different career paths. So uh, after that experience, I did stay in product management for a little longer at an education tech company. But then I shortly after I moved into early stage venture capital um, investing mostly in like very, very early, uh, usually when it's just like two founders in a garage, um, in consumer tech, some software. And then most recently was leading food and beverage investing at a firm called Pear Ventures. 
and I'll let KJN cover his background. Yeah. So um, similar to Kaylee, definitely did not have a background in food and was not equipped to move into food, but did have a lot of exposure in, in building consumer products. Um, spent the last decade uh, at a variety of tech companies. Um, Kaylee mentioned we worked at a mobile gaming company together. Uh, later, I went to a healthcare startup called Amino, where we were trying to solve uh, how to provide consumers with higher quality healthcare for for lower cost. Um, and then after that, went to a, a startup you may have heard of called Facebook, I guess now Meta, um, where I was leading product for a, a, the newly formed video creators team before, you know, teaming up with Kaylee to work on Emmy. Yeah, and, and it's actually really interesting because um, Kaylee and I, we've, we've often thought long and hard about our career journey and how we ended up where we are today. Um, Kaylee and I actually both started in the finance industry first, um, and then we both moved into mobile gaming. And it's interesting because I think after those experiences, which, but, you know, arguably maybe were a little bit more like perhaps finance or even just like personal driven, um, we both like started caring a lot more about uh, just working at mission driven companies. And that's one of the reasons why I went into education tech and KChant went to healthcare. But even at those companies, we kept thinking about scale and impact and that's one of the reasons, you know, I was like just a product manager on an app in a broader education tech company. KHN was working, you know, as a product manager at a health tech company trying to address a huge healthcare problem. And so both of us then like from there tried to go the opposite direction where we tried to work on scale. And so that's why I was, you know, I was in venture capital. I was thinking, oh, you know, the highest leverage thing I could be doing is investing in companies that are building good things for the world. And KHN was at Facebook trying to understand you know, how to impact millions of consumers at any given time. And I think after these experiences, we, we came to realize that, you know, something that we could do that could blend both that mission and that scale was work on IMI, which, you know, is kind of like our high leverage impact to the world where we can build a product that's healthier for the world, but at scale. Yeah. And give, given your background, maybe not specific to the industry where you know how to make the products themselves, but your, your backgrounds, again, like you mentioned, Working on one thing to to work on, and then eventually build a mission driven company. Working on on build and on operating at scale. How much of what you the the expertise that you had in 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 uh, completely different industries was was overlapped or or transferable to starting a brand new business? Yeah, I I could definitely comment on the product side. I think one of the unique things about you know building products in in, in tech in particular, is that you're, you're expected to be wrong like a, a fairly significant number of times. Um, but like the number one mantra is just move really fast, um, get products out to people, and um, get feedback so you know whether or not you're heading in the right direction. And so, you know, we really took that to heart with Emmy. And for us, uh, it was about getting products spun up as fast as possible and getting it into the hands of, of real customers. And so, you know, one of the things we did in the early days is um, we, we literally just made noodles in our own kitchen um, and went around town to various friends and family and just asked people to taste our product. Um, in the early days, people were like, this is horrible. Um, and so we're like, okay, well, let's cross uh, shirataki off our list of, of ways we're going to make this product. Mm. Um, and that's, that's really how we landed on the product that we have today, which is a lot of trial and error and just moving as fast as possible, um, and getting real, real customer feedback. So that, that was largely transferable, you know, the coding bits and like the food manufacturing bits, like completely unrelated, but 
the, the higher level things were, were extremely valuable. Oh, one other thing to add is Cajun and I also took, um, it, we, I think we both have community building backgrounds in the sense of, um, you know, previously I, I had also built um, the world's largest product management community uh, when I was still working as a product manager. And Keichen, when he was at Facebook, he was really helping to build products that would help creators manage their communities. And so that definitely was kind of this meta layer that we wanted to bring into Emmy, where even during our year of R&D, we actually built in public and, and built this community, this private community of thousands of people who, by the time we launched, were pretty fanatical about the product and wanted to evangelize it to others. And this community uh, is has really been kind of a, a, a beachhead cornerstone of like how we think about um, new product development or getting feedback on designs of our packaging um, or even thinking about like the nutritionals of our product. Um, so I think that is something we, we definitely brought from our previous experiences. Yeah, I think community building and having a community is one of those assets that um, that, that are great to, to, to start building when you don't have many resources at hand. And it's kind of one of those assets that just keeps on giving, not just in the sense of getting customers, return customers, but also to your point about probably using them as like a sounding board or feedback and learning how to, to, to guide or direct your company from having this, again, sounding board um i think the, the concern the the question that some listeners might have is like how do you do that like what is it what does it mean to be to to build a community especially from someone that maybe has never done has never built a community before that that maybe has never considered uh you know starting a facebook group even like how do you even begin this process of of building a community yeah, I think the, the the first thing to call out is, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, getting email subscribers, uh, getting SMS phone numbers is building community. And that's that's not true. That's definitely one piece of the puzzle. Um, and, and that piece of the puzzle, of course, is like the acquisition side of getting people in. But a true community is very different from an audience in that a community, um, generally, the members are engaged with each other, not just, it's not just like a one-way relationship or even a two-way relationship between the brand and the audience. It's a three-way relationship where it's brand, audience, and then the audience speaking to other members of the audience. And I think for us, um, we were pretty deliberate in the early days of picking Facebook groups as our medium of our community because Cajun and I did a lot of demand testing before we even built the product. And um, in the early days, we kind of realized that uh, our audience who was interested in this like low carb, high protein instant ramen tended to actually be um, like, for example, like a 35 to 65 year old female. Um, and we knew from our mobile gaming days, because we we had to study a lot about customer demographics back then, um, that a lot of that that core audience did live on Facebook um, and, and some on Instagram, but it was mostly on Facebook. And that's actually why we chose that medium to begin with. But once we figured that out, um, we would basically funnel, um, we would take people on our email list and like we had a drip sequence and all the calls to action were to join our Facebook group because we knew there we would have an opportunity to, again, build in public, uh, share a lot of behind the scenes in a, it was in a very non-transactional way, which I think sometimes email does feel transactional. 
And then in that community, people could also get to meet each other. So we would often like tag people on comments. We would get to, we'd like talk to people one-on-one, get to know their interests, and then we would match them with other people. And now if you join our community, you know, there's people posting new recipes, new like bowls, different ways that they've like prepared Emmy. And we know how different people liked to prepare it in different ways. So we're able to connect them to each other um, and they'll chat together in the threads. Yeah, so, so so you mentioned 35 to 60 year old woman, and I'm going to take a stab here to say that's not the demographic that's second nature for either of you maybe to talk to. It's not who you, you either you are. So how do you know how to create the content for a community that might not be representative of necessarily who you are? So, Cajun, uh, I hope you don't mind if I take this one. Um, it's, it's funny because in the early days, <clears throat> we definitely tried to cater uh, to that audience where uh, it was this older female audience that was also interested in health and wellness. And I think part of it was in the pre-launch phase, it was actually still, you know, it doesn't matter who the audience is. Most of the time, they're going to be interested in behind the scenes where we would literally take photos of us like traveling to like a blender or like mixing things in our living room. I think that's always going to be interesting content. But post-launch, we actually had this moment where we were trying to cater a lot of our like organic channels to post like health tips, things that we thought this audience would resonate with. And it kind of got to a point where, where we just realized over time, this felt really inauthentic to who we were as founders and kind of our experiences growing up. And um, this is just kind of us being very vulnerable about uh, what actually happened, where I think three months after we launched, we kind of looked at our content and we said, you know what, this is just not who we are. And um, we kind of we just went back to our roots because Kitchen and I grew up as Asian Americans in America. We had these unique experiences straddling um, both like our Asian heritage and our American upbringing. And we wanted to share a lot about that, those experiences, like the, the different like Asian food and the Asian culture we grew up with as these third culture kids. And so we really started reorienting a lot of our content, um, both to our community, to our audience, and I think that really just changed uh, the direction of the business where now it feels a lot more authentic. People still love our brand because they love following, you know, us, you know, our story as individuals and how we started this. So um, it's definitely felt mm. a lot better now. Yeah. And I'd imagine that, was, that felt like a, a risky decision to make where you kind of have something that's already having traction and but it doesn't feel authentic to you and probably it doesn't, doesn't feel as fulfilling because it's not as authentic. So also see the pull of wanting to return back to the kind of more authentic uh, roots. Uh, was it a hard decision? Like from the outside, the way you describe it, it sounds like it would be a difficult decision if I were in your shoes to, to make that call. You know, uh, in, in all honesty, it, it actually wasn't that difficult of a decision. Um, I think there was always a part of us who thought like um, that thought maybe we would alienate some customers, but um, when it came down to brass tax, we also realized, you know, the same type of people who would want to eat this product is also the same type of people who would be interested in this, uh, in our stories. And so there was a lot of alignment there. And I think the thing with, with content and media these days um, and given sort of the stage we were at, uh, there's just so much information and we were such a young company. We always knew that if things, if the metrics got worse or if, you know, people gave us feedback that it wasn't resonating, we, we could always pivot back. Um, it wasn't, uh, one of those decisions mm. that was intractable. That makes sense. Yeah. It's, it's actually 
pretty fascinating because to KJM's point around like people who would want to eat this product would probably be interested in that type of, you know, like more content or who was, that was authentic to who we are. We've actually noticed when we do like user interviews and we talk with um, our customers, you know, we ask them like, how did you hear about Emmy or how did you discover Emmy? We're starting to see that a lot of them, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like cool to be cultured these days where there's obviously a lot of media around like Asian American culture. There's, there's now TV shows where like, you know, Squid Games is like number one, or there's like a lot more Korean dramas, or, you know, we have the first Asian, you know, Marvel superhero. And we see a lot of our non-Asian customers actually saying like, yeah, actually I was, you know, watching this Korean drama on Netflix and they were eating ramen in the show. And it got me curious because I'd never tried it. And so I went online, searched up like a healthier ramen because obviously people don't want to eat like an unhealthy one. Uh, and then that's how they discovered Emmy. So uh, it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of macro tailwinds happening, but mm. I think, um, the audience, you know, they, they are seeking this stuff out and it allows us to be authentic and still appeal to them. And one thing I'll also add is, uh, you know, Kay- Kaylee and I have been friends for a long time. And for us, it, we really made it a point to make sure we were always having fun, uh, with building Emmy and, you know, the direction our content was going initially when it was inauthentic, it, it, it really just, it felt very draining, um, to be completely frank. And so like after we were like, screw it, let's just do what feels fun. Um, it became a lot more enjoyable. Um, and you know, uh, the authenticity like, and fun has come back into running this business. And we think that that's going to give us a lot more longevity as well. It even ties to like our core Emmy mission where, um, you know, we want to create foods that basically embolden people to play by their own rules in life. And that's like very specific language because like Hichan mentioned, you know, we're very close friends um, and we just wanted to have fun like while building this. Obviously, we're, you know, we're going to keep growing and um, going to be smart about building it. But uh, we did this because, you know, it was something we wanted to exist in the world. And people told us we you know couldn't be done, but we kind of just played around in our own kitchens um, made sure that, you know, we, it was, we enjoyed the process and, and that's kind of how it happened. And we think that everyone deserves, you know, that chance to really just play by their own rules and, um, still have fun along the way and be authentic to themselves. Yeah. And I want to circle back to this idea of how important it is, uh, that, that you've discovered, both you have discovered about having fun in, in, in business and why, why, why it, it's helped you guys. Before we get into that though, I want to just kind of, wrap up this this idea of like community building so you mentioned building in public was a it was the kind of content that was working that felt right to you how else has your your content morphed and, I, and you know i encourage people to to check out the the facebook community that, that you built and we'll link to all that and everything but give us a sneak peek like what is it that about your community that you feel is that that you've created that allows it to be engaging there's a couple of things. I think that in the early days, it really felt more like a one-way conversation at first where we, again, we were still in this like pre-launch phase. We didn't even have this product out and people wanted to join because they wanted to follow our journey. And I think that's like a common thing you're going to see with most brand building today is people want to be a part of this journey. They want to see what's going behind the scenes. They want to know that there's real people building this brand. So Cajun and I, when we started out, it like no joke, people are always like, oh, like, did you put a lot of thought into your content pillars and like have this whole content strategy? And mm. no, we, we really didn't. Like Cajun and I would get together, we'd be like sitting in our living room and we'd be like, hey, why don't we take a photo of this like noodle bowl that we made for lunch and like, let's just post it. 
or when we were traveling together to go to like LA to meet with suppliers, uh, we would go to like a noodle restaurant again and we'd be like, Hey, we just found this like really cool, uh, like udon place, like here's like a bowl and here's like a photo of the kitchen. So it really was just sharing like our life and how like we were taking steps in our life to to um, like educate ourselves towards building this brand. And I think that obviously evolved when we launched where, um, or sorry, as we got closer to launch where we started doing a lot more polls, like we would ask people, hey, just curious, like what do you think about this iteration of packaging design? Would love any thoughts, any feedback, and then people kind of just got bought into the process where they felt like their opinion actually mattered. And it did matter because we took into account all their feedback. We would structure like pretty comprehensive surveys. Um, luckily, because as previous PMs, we have some kind of, some of that like UX experience. Um, and so a lot of their feedback actually influenced the product. And I think when they see that happen, they get bought in even more. And there's there's definitely something really important that that Kaylee hit on there. Uh, he mentioned that in the early days we were posting stuff into the channel. It was more or less just going into a void. Uh, it was just like us talking to each other uh, in the Facebook group. <laughs> um, but what happened over time was like we really created a safe space for us to just post the dumb things that we thought were interesting. And now what you're seeing in the community is almost like this um, because we set the precedent of like you know, creative expression in there. Uh, you get customers who are posting meme videos um, with Emmy ramen. Um, people are cooking Emmy with weird things like elk steaks. Uh, the other day, someone made um, sushi rolls using Emmy ramen. And then last week, this is probably a recipe that I got to go and try sometime. <laughs> someone made a ramen breakfast burrito uh, mm. and it looked delicious. That's awesome. I definitely got to check out the Facebook group. I want to get some tips on how to how to spice all that <laughs> up too. Um, so as as you're doing this though, I, I I'd imagine, or maybe maybe you don't haven't felt this, but I'd imagine that as the company's becoming more established, you might start feeling okay. There's more at stake here now. We got to be more serious. We got to we got to be more formalized. We got to be more serious. We got to try to pay attention to, to best practices. We got to. There's more at play here now. We in is now responsible to only have fun. Did you feel that urge? And how do you balance that with this, what, what sounds like a, an innate need for, for both of you to, and almost like a, a, a um, an agreement that you both had to have fun when the company's becoming more established and again, more at stake and there's just, just a, a pull towards, towards being more serious? Yeah, I think a lot of brands feel this pressure. Frankly, even like individuals, um, a prime example is like, if you go on Twitter, you know, for, when you someone is growing from the first zero to like their first 10,000 followers, they're a lot more vulnerable, a lot more transparent. And then you notice this shift from like 10,000 to 100,000 followers where it they just start to curate mm. a lot further. And this is common with you know most social platforms. That's why Facebook, like Instagram, they kind of became curated over time. I think Kitchen and I, obviously we do have to think about this stuff. Um, you know, we have to present like a cohesive brand. Uh, we recently brought on you know, co-creative directors to help with this. But that Facebook community is still really that safe space, like HN mentioned, where we can kind of be our goofy selves and our goofy selves still blend through. Like if you look at our, our post-purchase emails, there's literally like gifts of us like jumping and high-fiving each other and like throwing broth in the air as like a celebration. So there's always going to be opportunities for our, our authentic selves to shine through. We just need to spend some more time thinking about um, how to make that more cohesive across all of our channels as well. 
Mm. So, so you had mentioned that when the the community first starts, I think this is a a challenge, a a point, like a a, a point of obstacle for a lot of people to continue uh, building community. Is that at first it's just you, or in your case, you two to, together in this this Facebook group, and eventually as more people come in, there's still probably not much discussion going on amongst because you had mentioned that uh, there's the three parts, three kind of communications going on in a community, and one of them is from audience to audience. Um, so you had mentioned that. By being authentic, by being vulnerable, by just trying to have fun, that kind of set the standard for for set the set the standard, set the kind of context for what kind of community you wanted to build. Um, but were there other ways to encourage this kind of communication or 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 engagement between members? We did actually. So I think that a lot of times it's going to come down to just understanding. Um, so a community ultimately is just made up of a bunch of individuals, right? And you have to get to know everyone on an individual level. Uh, at, at a certain scale, it's of course very, very difficult. But you know, in the early days, like we got to know each one of these people, we treated as you know, uh, like they were extended team members in a way where um, we would get to know their interests. Like we have this long introduction thread where everyone who comes in introduces themselves, like where they're from, you know, why they love ramen, and you kind of just get to know these people over time. Uh, there's this guy like Mike Nielsen in our group who makes the, like he makes these awesome videos of Emmy where it's kind of like a, like the meat, very meme like, and it's really funny. But when you have multiple conversations with him in these threads, you just get to know him as a person over time. And so now I can always like, whenever I see some other community member mentioning something related to that, I'll be like, I'll just tag Mike and I'll be like, Hey, I think you two would get along. And then, then they start talking to each other. Or we have um, another guy, John Henley, who loves making, like he'll take Amy and he'll, he'll use them in different use cases. Like he makes trail mix out of Amy. And then we have another lady, uh, lady Barbara Chen, who Kei Chen mentioned, she actually makes sushi using Amy, like instead of rice, um, she uses our noodles. And so like John and Barbara, we know like to think, very creatively. They like to use, like make Emmy in different ways. So we'll just pair them. We'll be like, Hey, you two should chat because you guys are coming up with these really interesting creative recipes. So I'm sure you guys could riff off of each other. Yeah, that's pretty straightforward. Like you get to know your community, get to know the members first. And then because you two have been there from the beginning and are most invested in it, you know them better than anyone. And then your job from there on is just to introduce people to each other. Is that, is that the, the recipe behind all of this? Yeah. And there's more sophisticated ways to, um, when I used to run my product management community, I actually had a spreadsheet where I would track like every single individual, what their interests were, like what they were working on, what, you know, what industries their products were in. And then I would just look for opportunities to connect people in the DMs, be like, Hey, you know, Tom, you should connect with Stacy here because you're both working on like this product. And so we don't do that in the Facebook community. I think that that can feel a little too, too like CRM like, but I think we just have so much like pattern recognition and really like these people believed in us since day one. So uh, we just had known like a lot of them at this point. So I think it just feels very natural. Hey, real quick. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now let's get back to the interview. Makes sense. So I want to talk about the the very beginning. And I think you guys were mentioning how one of the key uh 
keys to success early on was just getting the product spun up as fast as possible so that you can get out to customers and get that feedback right away. Talk to us about some of the things that, like how, give us an idea of like what you mean by, by fast and maybe even beyond that, what are some things that you find that maybe other entrepreneurs, specifically in the in the maybe food and beverage space that get too stuck on that you feel like they should kind of try to move along faster so they can get their product out to customers? Yeah. Um, so this is Kei Chen. On the product side, like when we first started, uh, the very first thing that we did um, before we even sheeted our first thing of noodles, uh, we literally wanted to see if people would be interested in buy this product. Um, so I used to work at Facebook. I had a bunch of ad credits that they give for free. Uh, we spun up like a fake website with a fake product, put a checkout flow, and we just put some ads on the website to see if one, people would buy this. And two, if we could get someone to buy this that, um, you know, at a very high price point, because we had no idea how much it would cost to make this product. Um, and through that experiment, we ended up learning that, hey, there were actually a good number of people who were very interested in this product. Um, and they were, they were willing to pay. People actually put in their credit cards, checked out. Um, we, we, went, we went to a few and we're like, hey, do you, this doesn't exist yet. Um, we're going to refund you. Um, and some people said like, no, just hang on to it until the product launches, like consider it like an early investment. Um, and so, you know, that was an example of us like, trying to move really fast and not getting too hung up on, um, you know, f- trying to make this before we validated like the first thing, which was this, does someone want to buy this? Uh, and then after that, we decided, okay, like we know people want to buy this, um, let's see if it's even possible <laughs> to do this. And we literally went on YouTube, read a bunch of research reports on how to create like a low carb plant-based ramen. Uh, Kaylee and I had to Google translate like Chinese and Japanese research reports and patents to see what existed out there um, to see if it was even possible before we even started, you know, trying to find a kitchen or trying to, uh, trying to like mass produce these things. Mm. So when you were, when you were producing, I think you had mentioned at one point that you were making your kitchen and just like trying it out on maybe friends or like on a street, trying to get people to try it out. Um, and you're trying to nail down the, the, the product first, like maybe is that this doesn't even taste good. Um, talk to us about that. Like at the very beginning of it all, when you're just trying to even figure out what are you selling? Like talk to us about that kind of iteration phase. Yeah. So when we first started off, we, uh, Kaylee and I don't actually know how to cook. Uh, well, we can, we can cook eggs, um, but a lot, <laughs> a lot of what we've learned um, culinary wise has come over the course of running Emmy. And so the first thing was basically learning like, Hey, what are the options that are out there um, in terms of making a product? And so that's how we landed on shirataki. It was the obvious like low carb noodle answer. Um, because it's, it already exists in the market. And we asked ourselves, like, could we make it better? Um, we went down that route, got a lot of people to try it. Uh, we, <laughs> it was like almost, almost unanimous hatred towards the product. <laughs> <laughs> I've tried those kind of noodles. Yeah. <laughs> Not a fan. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's definitely a, an acquired taste. Um, so we, we just quickly crossed that out and then we're like, okay, like that's not going to work. Like we got to make it a traditional style noodle um, uh, that's like sheeted, cut, and then, you know, cooked. So we basically canvassed every single like low carb, 
keto website to look at recipes that people make online to see what the list of ingredients we could play with were. And we ended up with a list of, you know, hundreds of different ingredients um, that were on the protein side that were low carb. And then we had to find, you know, ingredients that would like bind everything together and hold everything together. (laughs) And we literally just went through the spreadsheet and made permutations of every single ingredient. And we just like each bought uh, like a, a stand mixer and we just made noodles. Uh, and we did this for, for days, uh, if not months, uh, just testing every single permutation to see what would work until we finally landed on something that worked. Uh, so it, we, we literally brute forced the problem. I think I really want to get into the mindset at this, this stage where did you know that eventually you'd find something that worked or like, was there a point where you're thinking, you know what, we might not be able to figure this out ever? You know, uh, I, I'd be lying if I say that didn't cross our minds. But at that point, we 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 had already quit our jobs and we we're like, we're going to make this work. Like, it has to be possible um, to make something work. And we we always knew that there were versions of our product that were like, okay, that would work. But for us, it was kind of like seeking the next better option. And every experiment we ran... We found something that was slightly better than the last. And over time, our confidence just grew where we're like, okay, we know we have something to fall back on, but let's keep going. We think we can get a formulation and a recipe that will work even better. That makes sense. And speaking, so speaking of not, not kind of having a concession or not, not compromising, I want to talk a little bit about once you figured out what worked in your home kitchen, having to now bring this to a, a manufacturer and you had some challenges early on with trying to find someone to now replicate the the kitchen version that you had made talk to us about the, that experience <laughs> yeah that was uh that was an interesting a very interesting experience it's probably one of the uh one of the major setbacks actually in the early days that we had at Emmy. so we had this formulation that that we loved and uh it we had never worked with a manufacturer before so we had no idea whether or not it would work um we decided actually that we wanted to, you know, if we wanted to produce a great ramen, we had to go to Asia because that's where like all the delicious ramen brands are. Um, and we found a factory. Uh, we shipped a few thousand dollars of our special flour blend that we had come up with in our own kitchen. And once it landed there, it, it actually got seized by customs in in Taiwan for having an ingredient that, that they didn't recognize, um, but is allowable and popular in the United States. And they actually destroyed... Uh, a couple thousand dollars worth of merchandise wow. um, that we had, and you had a manufacturer this time that was willing to to uh, work with that those ingredients. Yeah, yeah, we 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 had basically just picked up the phone and dialed a bunch of folks to see who would be willing to take a risk on a startup, and uh, someone had agreed to do it. Uh, we had shipped them a small parcel, like a small box of the product, and uh, they were able to make a small batch. And so we're like, okay, cool, like let's let's send you guys like a big container worth. Uh, and, and, and that's what got seized. Wow. So then what next? Like, how did you guys overcome that? That sounds like another obstacle where you're like, not that you'd give up, but like, that's pretty, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. it feels like bad luck. That was, uh, that was definitely a very challenging moment. I remember Kaylee and I, we, we looked at each other, like, what do we do now? Um, and, and we were, we were pretty stuck. And so we, we turned to a bunch of our advisors, um, you know, folks who are really experienced with supply chain, salvating different products. Uh, and they, they told us like, don't go international. It's, it's going to create a ton of problems and headaches. You're going to spend a ton of money. It's, it's incredibly risky. And 
you know, they're, they're right. Like international supply chains are, are pretty hard and they're, and they're much riskier. And we had experienced that firsthand. So we actually ended up pivoting um, to produce a different type of noodle, which is uh, a lot less popular. And it's not the type of ramen you're familiar with that you grew up eating. Uh, and it's also not the ramen that we sell today. But we ended up manufacturing it locally. Uh, and that was the first product that we actually launched um, in, at the beginning of 2021. Uh, the product ended up being a lot less tasty and um, much more expensive to make. Um, but needless to say, uh, when we launched that product, uh, in the spirit of getting to market fast and getting real feedback, um, the product wasn't a hit. Uh, people, people didn't like it, uh, to be completely honest. And, and at that point, we had spent over like six figures in inventory and we had spent nearly eight months in lost time. Uh, and, and then we felt really stuck. <laughs> we, it, we were like, oh God, what do we do now? Um, you know, going back to like Kaylee's original point about our mission and, and playing by our own rules, like we ended up deciding to like listen to our gut and we wanted to go revisit Asia. Um, and so we had to completely reformulate our product um, to meet Asian standards. Um, and we wanted to take the risk and we were like, the difficulty here is, is totally worth it for a much better product. Um, and we ended up finding a great partner um, to help us manufacture our product. And, it, you know, it's what we're selling today. Uh, customer reviews have gone up significantly. People are much happier with it. It's a lot more familiar. And, you know, I think that that entire experience just really enforces um, our internal mantra of, you know, uh, of playing by our own rules. Mm. So this first, um, I guess, large batch that you had, you mentioned six figures in inventory is not the version that you sell today. Like what, what happens to that? Were you able to eventually sell it? You just had to toss it. If it wasn't sellable. Like what, what happened? It, it ended up being a combination of both. Um, <laughs> Kaylee, Kaylee, uh, mad respect for Kaylee for, uh, figuring out ways to, to get rid of as much inventory <laughs> as we could before donating, we donated the rest. Yeah, I mean, I think to be fair, we we definitely had a contingent of folks who, you know, were following like low carb keto lifestyles who were just like hair on fire problem. They wanted a noodle mm. and they liked the product a lot. And so we were able to find pockets of these customers. Or like functionality was more important than like the taste. Exactly. I mean, to them, they still actually enjoy the taste. And in fact, even today, now that we have this new version now, many of those customers still email us or message us saying like, hey, will you ever sell the existing product? Um, so it's actually pretty shocking. It's pretty funny. Um, you know, there, there's always going to be customers out there. You just have to find the right, the right pockets of folks. That makes sense. So when you are kind of going at the speed where you're launching fast and just trying to just stay in the game and maybe not the ideal path that you had you wanted or maybe even visualized, but just trying to stay in the game. Uh, how do you deal with this well, maybe harrowing or like this, this thought that, man, like maybe we're doing it wrong because again, you're, it sounds like you're optimizing for, for speed over, because uh, it sounds like you, at certain points in your story, you feel you felt like you, you went with maybe what was speed and you learned a lot 
and it was useful for your journey, but then you realize, okay, this is actually, uh, we learn a lot to, to do it differently. So talk to us about like how you make decisions these days where you do still want to move fast as like, you know, a, a startup, um, but also now again, there's more in the line, probably more than six figures of inventory these days. Like how do you balance the speed versus like, I wouldn't say, I don't, I don't have a better word than doing the right way, but like doing more, maybe more of the meticulous path. So Kitchen, I'd love to chime in a little bit, actually. Um, I will definitely want to answer that latter part of your question. I think for myself, if I had to admit, like I used to work with um, a coach, uh, Kitchen and I actually uh, work with the same coach, but um, I had a lot of like deep insecurities and anxiety around this, which was like, I never knew if I was making the right decision. Mm -hmm. And I was like scared all the time because I was like, oh my God, startups are basically like uncertainty generating machines. And uh, you know, I'm always worried that like, we're going to like make a decision that's going to kill the company somehow. And I think my coach or our coach to his credit, um, you know, he used to be like a gamer and me and KHN are of course gamers. Um, in games, there's something called fog of war, which is like when you first start on a map, you, you don't see the whole map, right? You see like the area right around you, right next to you. And then everything else is covered in fog. And then as you take a step in a certain direction, that fog of war then unveils a little bit further. And I think, you know, our coach basically told me, he was just like, look, man, you know, you and K-Chan, you guys, you know, have been close friends. You guys have worked together. Um, you guys have certain skill sets and you just have to trust that you, you can, you're not going to know the answer. Like you can't see all the fog of war unveiled, but you have to trust that when you do unveil that next piece of fog of war, um, you'll know how to handle it. And you can like, you know, to handle that next step together, because that's what startups are. You, you just like, you kind of see what happens. Um, you know, what the next problem is. And as long as you trust in your problem solving capabilities, you can figure out that next problem. So I think that actually relieved a lot of that anxiety personally for me. And um, I think KHN is actually a much better strategic thinker. Like he's because like a, he plays 40 chess all the time. So I'll kind of let him answer more on like decision making <laughs> side. Uh, I think Kayla is giving me too much credit, but um, yeah, I would say like from my perspective, probably one of the most beneficial things um, in terms of uh, being able to move and take risks while still kind of like mitigating the downsides for us um, has really just been this partnership between Kaylee and I. Um, sometimes there's like decisions. Uh, we always go about it. Oftentimes we like discuss and debate and we get into to small arguments about like what's the best way to proceed. But I think at the end of the day, we come out with like a more multifaceted view because you know, I cover mostly product and ops. Kaylee drives sales and marketing. Um, we both want what's best for the company. And um, we look at a decision and we're like, is this going to bankrupt us? If the answer is no, um, we just move forward. And, you know, even if it's the wrong decision, I don't think either of us ever come from a place of judgment or blame. We don't ever look at each other and say like, okay, Chan, you like screwed this up. It's always like, okay, like what is the learnings? And then how are we going to fix this? Um, and that, that, takes a huge burden off of the decision-making process for both of us. Um, and, and, you know, even as we've grown bigger, like our decision-making framework has always been the same, like put together a case, consult with each other, debate it. Is this going to end the business? If not move forward and then figure out how to get to an answer faster. Like we just want to unveil as much of the fog of war as possible. 
Mm. Yeah, I like this um, this idea of a no, no judgment uh, as you guys are making these decisions, and then also this idea of the fog of war, where I think as entrepreneurs or as humans, really, we have this uh, this need to control, right? We need to control. We just be able to see the end. What's the entire path to take me from here to my 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 end goal? Um, but I think what you're getting at is a that's not. That's great. To, that'd be great to have, but it's not realistic. It's not possible. It's it's impossible to be able to see everything to the end. But what you have to do instead, or what's even what's maybe more relieving to do, is just trust that your future self can respond to the kind of ever growing fog of war as you advance in in, in your journey. Definitely. Yeah. So I want to talk a bit about the website. So I really love the design of it. Uh, com is the website. Again, we'll, we'll link to all of it and everything. Talk to us more about what went into building the website. Was it design in-house? Like, talk to us more about what went into uh, uh, building the website. Yeah, we so we worked with a branding agency in, in the early days of, of um, building this brand. And I think you know, most branding agencies will have the capability to do both the visual design as well as uh, potentially do the website development. I think because Keishin and I came from the tech industry, we cared a lot about uh, things like site speed and like CRO. And so uh, we wanted, uh, you know, specialists. So we wanted, of course, the branding agency to do what they do best, which is more on like the, you know, the branding architecture and the visual design. But we also wanted to pair them with um, a dev agency that uh, we knew could build, you know, very fast, seamless websites that, um, again, were very CRO oriented. And so it ended up being a combination of the two where uh, the branding and design agency effectively took a first pass at scoping out uh, the different sections of the website to ensure that there was, um, it was still on brand. And then our dev agency then would be able to like slightly push back here and there, uh, basically just like provide um, their insights around CRO. And we kind of came to this healthy combination and that's what our website is today. Yeah. The, the building of the website was actually relatively straightforward. I think, uh, where there was a lot more adventures and misadventures between Kaylee and I was the branding piece (laughs) and just trying to figure out how do we like take what's in our collective brains and then relay that to our branding team who could then like manifest it into this like uh, like an actual design and website and colors and language and fonts? Because Kaylee and I are not designers by trade. Uh, we've worked with designers in the past, but you know when when it's like a consumer product um, versus just like tech UI, <laughs> there was just like so much we hadn't taken into consideration. There are many nights uh, where we would have like a late night call and we're just like hmm. This doesn't seem right, but I don't know how to explain to the branding agency that we want something else that's that represents us and the ethos of Emmy and and what we want to convey. And so it was a lot of trial and error. And if you look at some of our early designs, like they're very, very different um, from what we have now. And uh, I would say that that was probably the most challenging piece, um, not having a designer on our team and having to like convey our thoughts to to someone external. Mm. And, and and I'm assuming that over time you've made tweaks here and there. Have there been any changes or any experiments maybe that, that you've run on the website that have had uh, maybe surprising or unsurprising uh, impacts? You mentioned very CRO focus. Anything specifically that has made a big difference? Yeah, I think the biggest difference was adding the uh, um, 
a lot of these like celebrity testimonials, which um, mm. is you know pretty obvious in hindsight. Um, we luckily, I think in, in in our previous round, we got to know a bunch of interesting uh, people who you know all basically just love the product, and you, you'll see some of those names on our website today. But we definitely noticed uh, a pretty significant conversion rate jump as soon as we embedded a lot of these testimonials, and it's it's kind of natural. Um, social shopping is a big thing these days where people want to know that, you know, whether through word of mouth or that there's people they follow um, that love the product um, that will convince them to buy. So I think that was a big thing. Um, we also used, like we currently use like a, a, a new shopping cart experience that definitely tries to uh, upsell and cross-sell directly within the cart. Um, so pretty obvious stuff, but I think that's definitely helped um, on the AOV side too. In these these celebrity um, uh, testimonials, how were how was this done? Was it just like sending it to them? Like, uh, what's involved in a getting a testimonial from a celebrity and then be being allowed to use it? So I think it kind of depends on the individual. With with someone like Sammy Udell, who's you know a celebrity private chef for like Jonas Brothers, like Priyanka Chopra, Ludacris, and more. It, it really started like, it was just kind of blind luck. We, we knew someone who was just like, Hey, I know this chef, Sammy, who cooks for a bunch of celebrities. She, you know, she'd probably be interested in trying this because she cooks, you know, healthy food for, for all our clients. And so we ended up shipping her some product. Um, she sent us an email basically with that quote that she wrote, that was like, I've eaten a lot of ramen and like, Amy is amazing. And so we just followed up with her and we kind of had this dialogue over email. We got on a zoom call um, and basically became friends with her. Like now we text her all the time. She texts us. She's always like, Oh my God, I just gave this to my dad or my grandpa. Or like, I work and I talked to a, you know, one of my clients about this. Um, so it's, it's not any different than the way we built our own private community. It's like, these are all individuals. They're just people too. Um, it never has to be transactional and, you know, you just be their friends. Awesome. Now, any other? You mentioned the the cross selling. Uh, what 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 apps did you use to to uh, to do that? Were any other apps that you recommend others check out that you have used for your your website? Um, yeah, I think there's. You'll probably hear a lot of the same names um, from other podcast uh, guests, but um, you know, definitely like Enquire Postgres Surveys has been huge for us, especially with attribution issues. Um, we we do a lot of you know, different marketing experiments. For example, we run like paid TikTok campaigns and a lot of times people just don't use discount codes there. So post-purchase helps a lot with, mm-hmm. with more accurate attribution. Um, cart hook, of course, for post-purchase offers um, just to get that AOV boost. Uh, we use Dovetail, which is an affiliate slash influencer management platform. Uh, Elevar is great um, for helping to bring your Facebook IG kind of ads manager conversion attribution back up. Um, we'll, of course, use Gorgeous for customer support, Clavio for email, Okendo for uh, product reviews on the website. Uh, definitely suggest Okendo over some of the other uh, review providers um, due to pricing. Um, on the analytics side, we definitely love like Source Medium as well as Nautilus Analytics, uh, Tax Jar for taxes, um, Archive app um, to help you automatically store like UGC assets across social. Um, and then grow LTV for, um, the cart, um, just to help you with cross-selling. 
Awesome. Yeah, I definitely think some names in here that, that have not been mentioned on the podcast before. So I'm excited to check them out and for others to check out as well. So emmyeats.com is the website. And I'll leave you this last question. What would you, maybe both similar answer or different answers, what, what would you both say is the most important thing for you to focus on over the next year uh, of the business to really get it to the next level? Yeah, this, I, I would say on the, the product side for us, it's about just creating more variety than the same three flavors. We plan to launch uh, a bunch of other other different ramen flavors um, as well as different styles of noodles. Um, but beyond that, for us, it's about, you know, how do we tap into kind of like the fun foods we loved um, eating while growing up um, as Asian Americans um, and then sharing more of that with the world? Yeah, we're, we're very you know, product and community-led or, uh, organizations. So I think a lot of uh, K-Chan's efforts are, are going to be super critical for, for the next year. Awesome. So thanks so much, Kaylee, K-Chan. Get emmyeats.com, I-M-M-I-E-A-T-S.com. Thank you so much for both coming on and sharing the story and your experience and advice. Thank you so much for awesome. having us. Appreciate it, Felix. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.